This is John Charles from Knoxville, Tennessee, and you are listening to California Dreaming on the Old Blue Jigsaw Network. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast is not that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show to be everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy and reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content, the most accurate download stats so you know if you're reaching the audience that you're wanting to, and a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So if you already have a podcast or you've always dreamed about starting one, Head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com slash dream to sign up, and the first month is on us. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers, or to get you started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free, using promo code DREAM, you've got no excuses. So, let's get started. I would first like to take the time to thank everyone for continuing to support California Dreaming on social media by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as for those who have left reviews for the show on Apple Podcasts or any platform that you listen to the show on, by spreading the word about California Dreaming in listening groups, and of course, for supporting us on Patreon as well. There are currently more than a dozen exclusive bonuses on Patreon, and for as little as a dollar a month, you can gain access to all of those episodes as well. This week, I'd like to thank Kimberly B. and Justine F. for joining Patreon. And I would also like to thank Brooke A. for raising your support. And last week, I accidentally thanked Jen H. when I should have thanked Jan H. My apologies for that. And if you would like to make a one-time donation to help support, you can do so through PayPal using our email at californiapod at gmail.com. Thank you again for all of your support. I'm going to tell you the story of a boy who immigrated to the United States from Ukraine with his mom back in 1989 when he was 12 years old. A boy named Mikhail Markasev. By all accounts, he was a good kid and an excellent student. Through the 90s, as he grew and became acclimated to life in America, he excelled in school. He breezed through high school, and as he headed towards graduation, he was on the fast track to the college of his choice. Whatever it was that brought his mother to the United States, one can only speculate. But no doubt that giving her son every opportunity to make something great of his life is exactly what she envisioned for her boy when she decided to chase this American dream. But the American dream for Markasev would be derailed by his own doing. For him, he just reached a point where going the college route wasn't for him anymore. Instead, he walked away from school, never to look back, and just started hanging out with his friends. They were there on the streets, hanging out in alleyways, and drinking. And I use the term friends loosely. They were really nothing more than a bunch of troublemakers, to be honest. Dropping out of high school would only be one of a string of poor life choices Markasev would make in the next couple years. People who knew him, classmates, friends, and teachers, 
None of them could quite grasp what was going on with the seemingly bright young man. But the person he would regress into, knowing the kinds of trouble that he would find himself before he would even reach the age of 20, that's the Mikhail Markasev who we are going to become familiar with in this story. A racist, petty, street criminal is the only incarnation of him we would know. In this 84th episode of California Dreaming, the tale of a killing in the Sepulveda Pass. Mikhail Markasev's mom worked as a seamstress. And of course, after many years in the United States, she would always speak with a prominent accent of her native country, Ukraine. This would not be the case for her son, though. He would shed the accent, and very quickly, he blended in with ease. And he took to English as if it were second nature, so much so that he would find himself enrolled in honors English classes in school. However, for some reason, he began taking on an accent that he apparently picked up from some of the company that he kept, Spanish. He spoke with a Spanish inflection, which at first I thought was kind of an odd direction to go with one's personal way of speaking, but then I thought, yeah, I've known this to happen, sort of. It's not uncommon for a person to pick up accents when they move to different countries, things like that. I mean, if an American moved to England, he or she might start picking up some of the nuances of the accent. But Marcus of going from the Ukraine to Southern California and picking up a Spanish accent struck me as something that he worked at purposefully, as Spanish would not be the native accent of the area, though there are a high number of Spanish-speaking immigrants who also live around here. So to me, what this indicates regarding Markasev's personality, despite his strong academic performance in school, an ability to maintain that in the face of having made such a dramatic move from a foreign country. All of this is indicative of someone who could have easily blazed his own trail, but he chose otherwise. Markasev would be a follower, latching onto something that he wanted to be and doing everything that he could to emulate that. In his case, he found a group of friends who hung out on the streets friends who associated with street gangs, and he did what he needed to do to essentially become one of them. He had an overwhelming desire to fit in, and he could have fit in anywhere, but he settled on gang members. But the thing was, Markasev wasn't one of them. Not completely. He wasn't from the streets. He wasn't Hispanic. This wasn't his story. It was somebody else's that the bright kid from the Ukraine wanted to make his. By all accounts, he really appreciated and enjoyed school after he settled in the United States. He took well to it, but there was something about these troublemakers that he found enticing. What was it about them? I can't say for sure. Maybe it was a need to be part of something more than just being known as a bookworm with a solid GPA. Maybe all that became a bore and he needed something more exciting to be a part of and he chose gangs. Whatever they were into, criminal activity, drinking, drugs, petty crimes, tagging, all of those things that street gangs are known for, I suppose. In an interview with the Los Angeles Times, Markasev's former Reseda High School principal, Robert Kladifko, said, 
It's really a shame that this young man, who seemed to really enjoy school, got on the wrong side. He pointed out that in his school records, it showed going back to elementary school, Markusev had been enrolled in classes designated for gifted children, adding, you have to be highly motivated to be in that program. Looking at a picture of a young Mikhail Markusev attached to the file folder that contained his class records, Principal Kladivko said, that's him there. He's a young man who could have really made a contribution to society and his family. When I read that detail, I began to try and think back to some of the people that we've talked about over the last 80 or so episodes. Young people who seem to have all the potential in the world only to inexplicably change course. And it really doesn't seem to happen all that often. I mean, on occasion, we have a young person who seems to be on pace to do well for himself or herself in life, only to make a few poor decisions or get mixed up in the wrong crowd and all their life plans go off the rails. More often, it seems, the subjects of our episodes, the people who lead troubled lives, we can trace back and find that they were troubled as youth as well. Could Marcus have had experienced some trauma in his childhood? It's very possible. That could explain some things. But from what we knew of him, at least here in the U.S., he appeared to thrive. Nobody who ever knew Markusev growing up could have known the direction his life would take, just a year or so removed from high school. To get some insight, the Los Angeles Times attempted to speak to Markusev's mother. Her name is Victoria. She didn't want to speak to any journalists or reporters, so the details of his youth would remain vague. Whatever we all here listening will come to know and understand can only be gleaned from his experiences in school, along with the recollections of classmates and friends who knew him when. It is known that Markusev's parents divorced when he was eight. Four years later, Victoria would take her son and leave Ukraine behind moving more than 6,000 miles to Los Angeles, California. Markusev enrolled in school, where he would earn stellar grades and never miss not one day of classes. He did not speak English very well when he first started school, but he picked up the language easily, and his strongest area of study was math. By the time he reached middle school, he met the requirements to be accepted into the gifted students program. As he was making his way through school, without a hitch, there was no indication that he was struggling or troubled in any aspect. His academic performance was on point. Nothing in his background or in his home life appeared to present any challenges, nor did he seem to be struggling with any personal issues or difficulties. He seemed healthy, happy, and thriving. The only trouble any of his teachers could ever recall with him was that he would occasionally speak when it wasn't his turn. If you were to tell any of them that this kid was going to end up in prison for the rest of his life, they'd tell you that you were out of your mind. Not this kid. Not a chance. After a year in Los Angeles, Victoria moved with her son to the city of Los Alamitos, California. It's a small yet pretty nice city that is technically on the Orange County side of the line that divides it from Los Angeles County, but it kind of straddles the border. 
I pass through Los Alamitos constantly, especially now since I've moved to Orange County, and I still work in Los Angeles County. Los Al is right smack in the middle of my commute. The city's crime rate is well below average, and the schools? It's one of those places that people will specifically move to the area so their children may attend the schools in the Los Alamitos district, which includes schools in very nice areas, including Seal Beach, Rossmore, and Surfside. And if you're from this area, then you know what I'm talking about. It's touted as one of the best districts in California. And Markusev would continue to flourish there as well. However, Markusev did not maintain his record of perfect attendance. His records indicated that while attending Los Al High School, he was given at least one warning regarding absences. Aside from that, his grades remained high. His teachers spoke very highly of him, with notes in his records describing him as a pleasure to teach, conscientious, and diligent. And like the school he transferred from, he continued to do well. He was in honors classes, and he joined the football team, playing the position of wide receiver. Los Alamitos, from all appearances, was just the right place for Mikhail Markasev. Many students from Los Al go on to four-year colleges, and the dropout rate is among the lowest in the state. Students who had classes with Markasev told the Los Angeles Times that he was somewhat talkative, but he never came off as a troublemaker, just a regular nice guy. They knew he was intelligent. They knew he earned high marks. He was popular, sometimes flirtatious with the girls, and he was a guy who did not have an attitude problem. He didn't seem to worry too much about what others thought of him. But there were those who saw another side of him, the side that you and I are going to get to know a little bit later on in our story. One former student stated, He just thought he was this little white boy who wanted to be a cholo. He was a wannabe. He wanted to be a gang member. Cholo has a number of different meanings, but in this case, what this classmate is referring to is Mexican gang members. And this classmate who described him as such was right. Markasev was starting to hang out with the Mexican gang, and he began going by a street name, Peewee. And it would be a name that he would tag everywhere. And as his time in high school trudged on, the timeline of Markasev's gradual deterioration would be immortalized in his school records. The days of praise and adulation from his teachers began to evolve into more problematic notations and comments. He was becoming more and more disruptive in class. He was falling behind on his classwork or not turning in assignments at all. He was beginning to regularly receive detention and he wasn't even showing up for it. And from there, things progressively got worse. He began getting into fights with other students. He also got caught tagging school property, an offense for which he was suspended. Then he was caught with drugs, leading to a second suspension. For Markasev, school was becoming less and less of a priority. Kathleen Bias was a resident of Los Alamitos, and the way in which her house was situated, there was an alley nearby that, 
From the front of her home, she had a clear view of. She would regularly see Markusev and his friends loitering in the alley. This was their favorite place to congregate, and she knew from the looks of them that they were involved in street gang activity, or at the very least up to no good, telling the Los Angeles Times. He got hooked up with the wrong people and showed poor judgment in his choice of friends. Those were people who made him think he was one of them. They were nice to him. Throughout the day, they would loiter around a park that was adjacent to the alley, going back and forth between sitting on the grass, sitting on a swing set, or sitting over on some benches. They'd also scrawl bits of graffiti on public property, one bit of it having read, Mike loves Maggie. Mike was Mikhail. Maggie was his girlfriend at the time. After sunset, they had a couple of spots that they'd gather around as to not be seen by police, who while driving by would flood the area with their spotlights. And one of those out-of-the-way spots was right near the window of Kathleen's bedroom. And as a result of that, over time, she became somewhat acquainted with them. So much so, they'd even bum cigarettes off of her and she'd oblige. Markasev, to her, though, seemed out of place. He was unlike the rest of the kids that he was associating with. In the few times that she'd interacted with him, she found him to be somewhat polite, well-mannered, and soft-spoken. He helped her once, getting a spare tire onto her car when she came outside to find that she had a flat. Once, he needed to use the restroom, but he was too embarrassed to ask, so he had one of his buddies ask on his behalf. Eventually, Kathleen would ask him what his name was, and he told her, even though his friends told him to tell her his street name, Pee-wee. She echoed the sentiment I shared with you earlier. He was a follower, never having the impression that he was ever in the lead in whatever these kids were up to. He just wasn't like the rest of them that hung out near her home. He wasn't loud or obnoxious, and he didn't have an attitude. Later on, Kathleen would come to his defense when he needed it the most. By the way, two of those people that Markusev would hang out with in the alley, Eli Zachariah and Sarah Peters, they will play a role later on in the story. By 1995, Markusev's mom seemed to feel it was time for a change, as it was clear that being in Los Alamitos, being around the friends that her son had made, was having a detrimental effect on him. Though he had yet to get in any trouble that was too serious, the two suspensions from school for tagging and drug possession was enough for her to try to get her son away from it all. So they moved about 50 miles northwest to Encino, California. Despite the move, Markusev continued making his way back down to Los Alamitos to hang out with his friends. He was a sophomore at Reseda High School, but his stint at the school would not last long. He would spend six months at the Los Pinos Juvenile Detention Center. What he was in for would not be revealed due to his age. After his stint in juvie, he would never return to high school again. Principal Kladivko did not know Mikhail Markasev. 
But when local news reporters began contacting him in early 1997, asking about the former Reseda High School student, his curiosity led him to pull Markasev's school records. It was clear that the kid had been in a steady decline since his freshman year back at Los Alamitos High. Principal Kladivko can't help but feel the brunt of the responsibility of Markasev's descent, that it rests on their shoulders. Somehow we failed him. He was doing extremely well in school. I really feel bad. He did what he did because something permanent in his life was lacking. We, meaning society, the schools, parents, do the best we can during the time we have them. There comes a time when you have to open up your hands and let them fly away and just hope that they don't dive bomb and crash. Principal Kladivko understands that Markusev was ultimately the master of his own fate. He was going to do what he was going to do, but he's been able to let go of that feeling that this was completely his responsibility as principal in knowing that he's had students that have to deal with much worse in their lives. Students that struggle with personal adversities, troubles adapting to changes or moving from school to school. In Markusev's case, from a whole other country. Principal Kladivko has been able to find a measure of comfort in knowing that Markusev is the exception, not the rule. Markusev's life would change forever one cold January night in 1997 when he would have a chance encounter with another young man with a bright, promising future. Enos William Cosby was born to parents William Henry and Camille Olivia Cosby on April 15, 1969. He was the couple's third child out of five and the only boy. Enos's four sisters were Erica, Erin, Ensa, and Evan. And his arrival after two girls was very much anticipated as dad had been hoping for a boy finally. Enos was born in Los Angeles, and he was raised here in Southern California, though he split his time between here, Philadelphia, and New York, as his family maintained homes in those cities as well. Enos went to George School, which is a private boarding school near Philadelphia. There, he excelled in several sports, including football, basketball, lacrosse, and track and field. Though academically, Enos struggled. He consistently received low marks, and this caused a great deal of tension between himself and his parents, as his mother was a PhD and his father held an honorary doctorate in education. As a matter of fact, his dad held more than 60 of them. Notice that I said held, as in, he used to have more than 60 honorary doctorates. Hold on to that thought for a moment, and I'll get back to it. What Enos and his parents didn't know at the time was that he had undiagnosed dyslexia, which of course led to all of the struggles that he encountered academically. Now, my dreamers, if you are picking up on the names being dropped in this episode... 
then perhaps you've been familiar with this story since the beginning. Then you've likely put it together that Enos Cosby was the only son of disgraced entertainer turned sexual predator Bill Cosby, who was currently serving out a 3-10 to year sentence at State Correctional Institution Phoenix in Skipack Township, Pennsylvania, after having been convicted on three counts of aggravated indecent assault stemming from a sexual assault that he committed against a woman named Andrea Constand back in 2004. At the time, she had filed a civil lawsuit against Cosby related to the assault, and those records were unsealed and publicized 10 years later in 2015. And in those pages and pages of documents and depositions, Cosby admitted to a sexual encounter with Constand, as well as numerous other women that involved the use of quaaludes. And he admitted that he knew administering those drugs to these women was against the law. The rumors of sexual assault had been swirling around Cosby for years. But due to the fact that he is not only such a high-profile celebrity, for decades he had been lauded as America's dad, stemming from one of his most prominent television roles as Dr. Cliff Huxtable on the award-winning NBC sitcom The Cosby Show. And if any of you were around in the 80s like me, then you were probably watching The Cosby Show. It was consistently the number one rated show on television, tied only with the sitcom All in the Family as being the only two shows to ever be the top rated show for a total of five seasons. And The Cosby Show was in the top 20 for its entire eight season run. It's been called the biggest hit show of the 80s, one of the greatest TV shows of all time. And Cosby's character... Cliff Huxtable was named America's Greatest Dad. People Magazine once called Cosby a towering symbol of fatherhood. Aside from being a top-notch production, it's also credited with helping blaze the trail for television as a whole to embrace shows featuring a predominantly African-American cast. Cliff Huxtable's family is somewhat loosely based on Cosby's own personal life to an extent. And as I mentioned, if you've watched it, then you've probably been able to recognize shades of his personal life crossing over into his character's life. The Huxtable clan consisted of four daughters and one son, the son being the third born, just as Enos had been. And even the struggles with dyslexia was written into the show as Cliff comes down hard on his son, Theo, for earning low grades in school, only to find out that he was dyslexic, leaving him feeling guilty for blaming his son for his poor grades. It was a known fact that Cosby in real life did carry around a degree of remorse for initially having blamed Enos's poor character for his low grades throughout school. And as for Cosby's honorary doctorates, honestly, dreamers, the list of awards and accolades that this man earned throughout his career is mind-boggling, as is the numbers of universities that issued him a doctorate. As a direct result 
of the sexual assault allegations made against Cosby following the release of his 2005 deposition in 2015, all but a handful of universities have since rescinded their honors. Fordham, Marquette, the University of San Francisco, Brown, Wilkes, Baylor, Lehigh, Tufts, Goucher, Amherst, Franklin and Marshall, Drew, Mullenberg, Springfield, Drexel, Bryant, University of Pittsburgh, Cal Poly, Swarthmore, Oberlin, Boston, Occidental, George Washington, Haverford, University of Connecticut, Colgate, University of Missouri, University of Pennsylvania, Ohio State, Notre Dame, Johns Hopkins, Carnegie Mellon, Temple, North Carolina A&T, Lafayette, Cooper Union, Yale, USC, Colby, University of Cincinnati, Medical University of South Carolina, Chapel Hill, Northwestern, New York, University of Maryland, University of Baltimore. All of them stripped Cosby of their honorary doctorates. And I mean, that's not even all of them. Incidentally, in Yale's 318-year history and more than 2,500 honorary doctorates that it has awarded, it has rescinded only one, Bill Cosby's. So yeah, for Enos, the shadow his father cast was long. When Enos began his studies at Morehouse College in Atlanta, it was there he was finally diagnosed with dyslexia. A friend had noticed his struggles and suggested that he get tested. Following the diagnosis, Enos attended Landmark College, which is a private university located in Putney, Vermont, that specializes in and is exclusively for students diagnosed with learning disabilities. After completing a semester of intense academic training and retraining, Enos went back to Morehouse, at which point his GPA skyrocketed from a low C average to a mid B average. And while studying, he took on some part-time tutoring, working with elementary through high school age students. He earned his bachelor's degree in 1992, going from there to Columbia University, where he earned his master's in 1995. During his time at Columbia, Enos continued tutoring students, this time specifically working with elementary school students with learning disabilities. And whenever possible, he kept secret the identity of his famous father, as some often wondered why he kept residences in three different states. He just explained his father was a businessman. His work took him to these locales frequently. It was his preference to keep his own profile low, despite his high-profile dad. For Enos's part, he had once written that the happiest day of his life was the day that he was diagnosed with dyslexia, and the worst feeling was the confusion that he was experiencing, further stating, I believe that life is finding solutions, and the worst feeling to me is confusion. This diagnosis of his dyslexia began the evolution of Enos Cosby. It became his personal mission 
to help others that struggled similarly to him. He felt so connected with overcoming what weighed him down for so long. He was overjoyed with the understanding and clarity what knowing brought to him. He delighted in sharing that joy. Enos became a leader. Just before he graduated from Morehouse, the Los Angeles riots broke out. The unrest had spread across our country, including where Enos was in Atlanta. When some of his friends and fellow students wanted to join in the rioting that had erupted, he stood up to remind his friends that when they demonstrate, just don't go crazy. They were still there to be in school and to get educated. And his friends listened. And through it all, only a select few people would know just how famous his father was. As while he was at Morehouse, the Cosby Show was still at its peak. And Enos was the apple of his father's eye, especially after they came to understand what was hindering Enos's academic achievements early on. His father had so much pride in the fact that his son not only overcame his struggles, he turned it around and used it and redefined it. It did not define him. And that was a sentiment that Enos passed on to those students who struggled similarly to himself. This does not define you. And most importantly, never give up. Those are words that Enos lived by. After graduating with his master's, Enos enrolled in Columbia's doctorate program. By January of 1997, Enos was on winter break from Columbia, spending time here in Southern California. At that time, he was only three years away from being the next Cosby to have Ph.D. tacked on to the end of his signature. But he would not be returning for the upcoming semester. He would not live to earn that Ph.D. he spent all those years working towards. Enos was in California visiting with friends on winter break. In the early morning hours of January 16, 1997, he was headed from his parents' house in the Pacific Palisades to his friend's house in Sherman Oaks. He was driving his green Mercedes-Benz northbound on the 405 freeway heading through the Sepulveda Pass, which is a little bit north of UCLA and south of Van Nuys. At approximately 1 in the morning, Enos was forced off the freeway at the Skirball Center Drive exit due to a flat tire. Now this particular part of the 405, though this pass is very woodsy with lots of hills, and the further you go out from either side of the freeway, you'll begin to see lots of homes on the hillsides overlooking the pass. At night, it is very dimly lit. There just isn't much around that's close to this particular stretch of the freeway. So he called his friend who he was headed to go see, a woman named Stephanie Crane, who also happens to be the maternal aunt of actresses Melissa and Sarah Gilbert. He asked her to drive to his location. And when she arrived, she parked behind his vehicle with her engine running, the heater on, and illuminated the area with her headlights 
so Enos would be able to see what he was doing while he was changing his tire. Suddenly, a man wearing a light-colored knit cap appeared at her window, which was rolled down. The man said, open the door or I'll kill you. Of course, this terrified her, so she immediately threw her vehicle into drive and quickly sped away. After traveling no more than about 50 feet or 15 meters, she had hoped that her having taken off like that had frightened the man away who had approached her window. So she turned around to see what, if anything, had happened and if Enos was okay. As she approached, she really couldn't see much of anything. Not the man, not Enos. She began calling out Enos's name, at which point she saw the man running away towards a vehicle parked not too far away. Then she looked down, and that's when she saw Enos lying on the ground in a pool of blood next to his vehicle, the door ajar, hazard lights still flashing. Stephanie called 911 from her phone. Police and paramedics arrived shortly thereafter, but it was too late. Enos had been shot one time in the head. Robbery had been a suspected motive, but he was still wearing a Rolex watch on his wrist, and he still had about $60 cash in his wallet. The morning Enos died was a Thursday. He was due back for the spring semester at Columbia the following Tuesday. Not only did he have classes to attend to, he still had appointments to keep with students he was scheduled to tutor. Enos was 27 years old. The LAPD investigating Enos's murder got in touch with Congresswoman Maxine Waters, who they knew to be a friend of Enos's family. They asked her for a phone number where they could reach his parents, but the congresswoman refused to disclose this information to the detective assigned to the case. She turned to a mutual friend of theirs, Essence Magazine publisher Ed Lewis, and asked him to be the one to contact Enos's family to let them know the tragic news. Waters did not want the Cosbys to hear this from the police or the media. But the detectives were not deterred by the congresswoman's refusal to provide them with the phone number. They knew that Cosby was on set at CBS Studios in New York at Kaufman Astoria Studios in Queens filming a new series called Cosby. A producer of the show received the call and was the one to break the news to Cosby. She approached him on set and asked him if they could speak privately in his dressing room. There's been a killing in Los Angeles. Enos may have been involved. He may be dead. Cosby immediately grabbed his coat. He had his private jet, and he was headed to L.A., but she stopped him. The police asked her to tell him not to fly out there, that they would call him which they did. His son was on the 405 when he exited the freeway because of a flat tire. Officers found him deceased with a single bullet to the head. The witness they had was very shaken and had difficulty describing the assailant, 
and the detective explained to Cosby what she had told him about going out there to shine her headlights while he changed his flat tire. Cosby asked if it was a robbery, but they told him it didn't look as though anything was missing. And Enos did have a pack of cigarettes in his hand. So it looked as though the assailant, in order to get close enough to Enos, may have asked for a cigarette prior to shooting him. Despite the media circus that would ensue, Enos Cosby would be quietly and privately buried on the family estate in Shelburne Falls, Massachusetts, on January 19, 1997, in the very place where he ran around and played as a child. The chief of police at the time, Wooly Williams, reached out to Cosby. They spoke for a while, particularly about other parents who've lost children. As a matter of fact, Chief Williams shared with Cosby that another child, a 17-year-old African-American girl named Corey Williams, no relation to the chief, had been shot on the same exact day as Enos. She was caught in the crossfire of gang violence as she was making her way home from school in South Los Angeles. Cosby got Corey's mother's phone number, and the two grieving parents shared a number of phone calls in the wake of their children's deaths. The initial thought was that this was an attempted robbery or perhaps a carjacking that went wrong. That somebody just happened by who saw Enos was driving a luxury car that perhaps Enos resisted and in a panic the assailant opened fire, shooting him one time in the head. Enos's friend Stephanie provided somewhat of a description, telling the investigators that the shooter was white, young, and thin, that he was maybe between the ages of 25 and 35, wearing a knit cap. Based on her description, an artist created a composite sketch which was distributed to the public and the media. Hundreds of tips came pouring in to investigators, and among them, the name Mikhail Markasev was included. Eventually, it would be an anonymous tip provided to the tabloid magazine, The National Enquirer, that brought about Markasev's arrest in March of 1997. Though he didn't exactly have a spotless criminal record, having been arrested previously on drug possession charges, there was nothing nearly as violent as what he was now being accused of. Those who knew Markasev openly expressed their belief that he was innocent, not believing for a minute that the soft-spoken, generally quiet, unassuming young man was capable of murdering somebody. Markasev was indicted on first-degree murder with the added enhancement of having committed the killing during the commission of a robbery. This would elevate the charges to a capital crime, thereby making Markasev eligible for the death penalty. He pleaded not guilty. When the grand jury convened in Markasev's case, two of his friends had testified against him. Sarah Peters and Michael Chang. Sarah Peters, along with her boyfriend, Eli Zachariah, 
the two that I mentioned earlier in this episode, they were with Markusev the night Enos was murdered. Sarah testified that the three of them were high on heroin and cocaine. They had pulled over at a park and ride that was about 450 feet or 140 meters away from where Enos had parked his car to put on the spare tire. She said that they were there to use a payphone. And I've also read in other reports that they did have a drug connection that lived in the area and that they possibly had intentions of trying to rob this connection. She said that while her boyfriend was on the phone, she watched Markusev walk away. She didn't know where he was headed. And as I said earlier, there isn't much around, nor did he say where he was going, though she was under the impression that he was going to try to rob someone. A few minutes had passed when she suddenly heard one loud popping sound. And not long after that, she saw Markusev running back to their vehicle telling them that they needed to go, they had to get out of there, let's go. They asked him what was going on, but he wouldn't say. And after they drove for about five miles, they pulled over in a heavily wooded area. Markusev got out of the vehicle, walked away again momentarily, came back, and they drove off again. Sarah couldn't say what the purpose of the stop was. This is where they believe Markasev ditched the murder weapon and the knit cap, which was recovered later on. Later on that day, they were all at a friend's house watching the news of Enos' death on TV. As Markasev watched the reports, it was clear he was anxious and upset. It was then that they realized it was Bill Cosby's son that their friend had shot to death. Markusev himself began to realize that he didn't just kill some random person. He killed the son of a very prominent, high-profile celebrity. And he was in some deep trouble. Eli Zachariah did not testify at the grand jury hearing, opting rather to invoke his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. Michael Chang testified Markusev admitted to him that he killed Enos that night. He described how Markusev told him that while Enos was fixing his flat tire, Markusev was high on drugs. He approached him, pointed the gun in his face, and demanded money. But what Markusev told him was that Enos was too slow to respond. And when Enos asked him to just hold on, this apparently enraged Markusev. So he shot him. He took too long. Chang testified that Markusev told him, You know what that, and he referred to Enos using the N-word. You know what he told me? He told me that he never had a gun to his face to just kick back and hold on. This made Markusev mad, and he couldn't believe Enos spoke to him that way as he held a gun to his face. So Markusev shot Enos and ran. He ditched the gun and the knit cap about five miles away. Chang, however, did not testify in Markusev's actual criminal trial, as he and another man named Christopher So had actually gone back to the wooded area to search for the gun sometime later on, though they were unable to find it. 
Police found it later, wrapped in the knit cap. The hairs in the knit cap matched to Markusev's. But by the time Chang was called to testify at Markusev's trial, he refused to out of fear of retaliation, as he was in jail awaiting his own trial for an unrelated case. However, Christopher So did testify, telling the court that he overheard Markusev telling Michael Chang that he killed Enos and he again used the N-word in describing him, and that it's all over the news. Sarah Peters refused to testify at trial as well, as she too was in the Orange County Jail waiting for her own trial, also on unrelated charges. Markusev's trial began in July of 1998 and lasted two weeks. One of the key pieces of evidence against Markusev, as it turns out, would be himself. While he was in jail, he had written a letter, and in this letter, he confessed to the murder, again referring to Enos using the N-word. He said that he had gone to rob a drug connection and obviously found something else. His defense attorneys attempted to argue that the letters were not written by Markusev, that they were forged in an effort to frame him, and that Eli Zachariah was the one who shot and killed Enos. And you remember that woman who lived by the alley Markusev and his friends used to loiter in, Kathleen Bias? Even she came and testified on behalf of his defense, describing her interactions with Markusev, how she found him to be a pleasant young man, cordial, incapable of what he's accused of. And she was of the belief that he was framed as well. But it was no matter. The jury convicted Markusev of first-degree murder. He did, however, avoid the death penalty, mitigating circumstances most likely being his age at the time of the crime. He was only 19. Markusev was sentenced to life in prison plus 10 years. Today, Mikhail Markusev, who goes by the name Michael Markusev, is in Corcoran State Prison serving out his life sentence. He is 40 years old. Two and a half years after his conviction, Markusev abruptly dropped all of his appeals and admitted to being the one who killed Enos. He did so by penning a handwritten letter addressed to California Deputy Attorney General Kyle Brody. His letter read as follows. Greetings and God bless you. My name is Michael Markusev and I am an appellant on your caseload. I am writing to you from Corcoran State Prison where I am currently serving my term of life without parole. I hope that you are well and in good spirits. Along with this letter, I am sending you a notice of abandonment of my appeal. As you can see, my attorney and I have both signed it and you are able to verify the fact that I am the author of this letter, not someone else. I would have called you. Unfortunately, I do not have telephone privileges here. My only access to you is through mail. Mr. Brody, although my appeal is in its beginning stages, I don't want to continue with it 
because it's based on falsehood and deceit. I am guilty and I want to do the right thing. I also need your help. Please let me explain. More than anything, I want to apologize to the victim's family. It is my duty as a Christian, and it's the least I can do after the great wickedness for which I am responsible. This is way overdue, and although my apology is too late, it's still the right thing to do. Close to a month ago, I sent a letter to my appeal attorney, which I wanted him to get to the Cosby family, along with an abandonment form for them to send in personally. I have no way of knowing if my letter ever reached them. I've attempted to contact them before, but to no avail. I fully understand their reasons for not wanting to speak to me. Is it possible for you to notify them of the abandonment? All I want to do is apologize. As you know, I have nothing to gain by this. There are more important things at hand. Mr. Brody, I trust that you, as an officer of the court, to do the right thing. It may be extremely naive on my behalf to approach you this way, but I have already usurped my other options. I hope that you understand. Please send me a confirmation of the denial, that is the cancellation. If you have any ideas, I'll be glad to listen. I'm not coming to you with guile or hidden agendas. This is as simple and plain as I can get. My final request to you is if it's possible, please spare my family the public ridicule and abashment. It's not their fault that I am here. And as it is, I've already put them through hell. Thank you. I truly appreciate it. Mr. Brody, I hope to hear from you soon. This is not about me, but about those whose lives I've marred. And my motive is to at least try to mend the things that I've destroyed. Take care and may the Lord bless you in every good deed. Your loved ones also. Thank you for your time and attention. Respectfully, Michael Markusev. It's clear that despite the tragedy that occurred the night that Enos Cosby crossed paths with Mikhail Markusev, that in some ways the two young men had at one time were on similar paths in life. For Markusev, the good grades and the high academic standing came easy to him. Yet for Enos, it was a battle all the way through school, up until he got to college when he was finally able to figure out why things weren't presenting themselves to him in the way that he was being told that they were. And once he understood that his way of taking things in wasn't wrong, it was just different, he ran with it, making it his life goal to help others find the clarity that he was able to finally discover. And even though Markusev was not afflicted with any type of learning disabilities, even though the learning came naturally to him, I can't help but think that if he had known Enos Cosby in a different place and time, Enos would have been able to find a way to reach the troubled young man when he began turning away from his studies 
opting to run around on the streets with his friends who were out causing trouble. And I kind of think that Markusev came to a point going on three years into his life sentence in 2001 when he wrote that letter, where he realized exactly what it was he robbed Enos's family and loved ones of once he became aware of who Enos was in life and the extraordinary life that he ended on that chilly night four years earlier. And the fact that he decided to come with the truth and end all of his appeals about what went down that night on Skirball Center Drive when he approached the man laboring to change his flat tire, admitting to the truth, taking the responsibility, halting his appeals, to me speaks at least to some measure of remorse in taking responsibility for his crimes. Mikhail Markasev could have continued to appeal his case for years following his conviction, as we all know that these kinds of things can drag on for a really long time, and it continues to dog the family, as the potential for a conviction to be overturned is always looming until the appeals run dry. And there very well could have been some grounds for appeal, one of the biggest issues was Stephanie Crane was unable to pick Markusev out of a lineup, nor did her description of him match up either as she put the age of the assailant between 25 and 35 while Markusev was only 19 at the time. It seemed as though Markusev arrived at that place. If it was because he found religion, if he had one of those come-to-God moments, whatever it was, he decided to stop putting this hurt on the family and loved ones of Enos Cosby. And when Enos Cosby was murdered, gone was Bill Cosby's one and only son. Since then, Cosby himself, his legacy, his reputation, his career, has all been obliterated by countless acts of sexual violence committed over the course of several decades perpetrated upon so many women that he's become known to be one of the most prolific sexual predators in recent memory, though he's only been convicted of attacking one victim. At the time of Enos's death, Bill Cosby's grief was palpable. Those who were close to Cosby at the time would say his world was shattered when Enos died. Cosby and his family were left with a tremendous void. All the hopes and dreams that he had had for his only son died right along with him. So many people reached out to the Cosbys, wanting to know what they could do, where they could contribute in honor of Enos's life. So with the guidance and encouragement of Reverend Jesse Jackson, the family answered the call to action to keep Enos's dream alive by forming a charitable organization that works towards the early detection and treatment of those struggling with dyslexia. It was called Hello Friend, the Enos William Cosby Foundation. The one thing that the Cosbys wanted more than anything during this difficult time for their family was to make sure that they maintained the integrity and dignity of the Cosby family name. Now, here, 
some 22 years after Enos' death, the irony of that is not lost on me. Of Bill Cosby during this time of mourning, Reverend Jackson would say, When Bill Cosby has the tailwind at his back, doing no wrong in records, movies, and television, you did not think it possible that he could be Job. But now, he and his family are facing a sudden storm. How they will handle it is really the ultimate way one's character and strength are measured. The Reverend compared Cosby to the biblical character Job. Job is a wealthy, prosperous, good man with a large family and extensive flocks. He is always good, careful to avoid any evil doing. One day Satan appeared before God in heaven. God tells Satan all about Job and how he was a good and prosperous man. But Satan tells God that the only reason Job is good is because God has blessed him far too generously. So Satan posed a challenge to God. Grant him the permission to punish Job, to beset him. And when he does, Job will curse God. God allows Satan to torment Job to test the claim that he will curse him if he torments him enough. But Satan is forbidden to kill Job. So over the next day, Job received several messages, each bearing terrible news. His livestock, his servants, his health, his property, and ten children have all died as a result of invaders or catastrophes. Job rips his clothes off and shaves his head, but continues to bless God in his prayers. Satan asks God for another chance to test Job, which God grants. So this time, Job finds himself covered in horrendous skin sores. Job's wife tells him to curse God, give up and die, but Job refuses. He works towards understanding the situation that he is in and chooses to search for the answers to solve his difficulties and struggles. This is who Reverend Jesse Jackson compared Bill Cosby to following Enos' death. The loss of Enos Cosby left an indelible mark on the lives who knew him and the lives of those he touched. He was on his way to fulfilling his dream of making the world for those who differently viewed it a little bit easier. To help people discover the greatest day of their lives when everything was vibrant, clear, and finally made sense. He spent his life obscuring his identity as the son of Bill Cosby in order to not receive special treatment or consideration. Little did Enos ever know that he would have certainly carved out his own place in this world, and not because of his father, but rather in spite of his father. And that brings this 84th episode of California Dreaming to a close. If you would like to discuss this case in more detail or any of the other cases that we have covered in the past, please feel free to request and join the California Dreaming official Facebook discussion page. There we have cultivated an amazing community of listeners and true crime fans who share their thoughts and opinions on all of the cases that we cover, 
as well as other current true crime stories, other news events, TV shows, documentaries, books, whatever you find that you'd like to share, please come and join us. You can also follow the show on Twitter at California Pod and Instagram at California Dreaming Pod. California Dreaming is proudly brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We are a podcast production company located in Los Angeles, California, with a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to, to consistently improve upon our current roster of shows, to develop new content that appeals to people all over the world, and to provide a thriving community for listeners and podcasters alike. I am so proud to be a part of this amazing group of shows and hosts. So please visit us at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. There you can find links to all of the shows in our network, the merchandise store, the blog, or if you just want to email us and let us know what you think, that's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. I'm your host, Roseanne. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, sweet dreams.